847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's uh, career, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. This episode is a return to the recurring segment that I call Listening To. Uh, as it spotlights a specific composer, uh, such as previous episodes focusing on Bernard Herrmann and Elmer Bernstein, um, and possibly a specific series, uh, which I hope would hope to cover in the future. Uh, here I will focus on legendary composer Jerry Goldsmith, um, but not as a career overview or even a certain genre, uh, but instead I want to zoom in on uh, the films that released of his uh, in the year 1982. Now, Jerry Goldsmith was a, uh, a continually evolving composer throughout his career. Um, he was able to shift uh, with prevailing trends as they changed. Um, and uh, he provided music for uh, TV and film from the late 50s all the way up until he passed away um, in 2004. Uh, so while he did evolve um, through, you know, each, you know, each year and each decade, there are hallmarks of his personal style that persisted. Um, and I think it makes it uh, really fascinating to, to look at his career um, because of, you know, of that dichotomy of his evolving sound, but, um, you know, also those um, items that you can highlight that you can kind of track throughout his career. Uh, but also because there was so much music that he wrote. Um, he averaged at least four or five movies a year um, throughout almost his entire career, um, and also did a ton of TV work um, in the 50s and the 60s, and even on into uh, a little bit in the 70s. Um, but it just means that there's uh, such a wealth of, of music to kind of dive into. It makes it really fascinating to focus on a particular year, I think, and, um, you know, kind of you know, try to examine what was he exploring musically at that time, um, and and how did that get utilized in projects just specific to that year, um, and then also what musical elements kind of fed into that year from previous, and then what did it lead to after that. So just for some uh, context uh, really quickly, um, you know, before we hit 1982, but in the late 70s, Jerry Goldsmith was, uh, his, his, sound, his sound started to shift a little bit um, into becoming a, a little bit more lush. Um, he was utilizing a larger orchestra, uh, and there was uh, a shift away from the more overtly experimental and harsh uh, textures that he was um, that he had been exploring in the 60s and, and part of the early 70s. Um, so he was moving more towards into something that was more kind of a post-romantic um, sound and uh, more tonal and, like I said, more lush as far as the textures. And this could have just been a response, uh, you know, this could have been a response to the, the Star Wars effect uh, because... Uh, John Williams' score, you know, not just, you know, not, didn't only just change the sound of sci-fi cinema from that point forward, but it did also reintroduce the large orchestra um, and back into fashion in the industry overall. Um, but it's also just Jerry Goldsmith's innate need to continue to um, change and grow as an artist. 
So some of the movies that he did in the late 70s with the larger orchestra like Star Trek The Motion Picture and Boys from Brazil um, led into the early 80s where he continued to develop that sound, a shift to that sound. And so uh, when we hit 1982... It's a real high watermark uh, for him as far as his career. And I think pretty much everything he did from the late 70s to the early 80s is a high watermark. Um, but in 1982 specifically, there were five films released of his. Uh, there was Poltergeist, The Challenge, Night Crossing, Secret of Nim, and First Blood, the first Rambo film. And... Um, these five uh, scores um, are all really fantastic, um, but they all show those, uh, they all sort of have that larger orchestral sound. And, and what's interesting about, uh, in addition to that, is that there's also influences that you can hear in several of the scores uh, from the classical composers, uh, Claude Debussy and Maurice Ravel, and specifically Ravel's um, concert work uh, for orchestra and chorus called Daphne and Chloe. Uh, which you can kind of hear how it influenced the secret of Nim. Um, but I find it fascinating that uh, the, that with moving into the more lush sonic palette, um, that elements then of Debussy also kind of worked that harmonic language that Debussy has, uh, which they had called Impressionism at the time musically, which had been, you know, of course, formally attributed to, um, uh, you know, art, but it actually did get applied musically uh, to Debussy's work because of these flowing textures and his um, ability to kind of uh, recreate uh, nature musically, which is something that he was interested in doing. But you can hear elements of Debussy's sound, that harmonic language, in several scores from 1982. So let's jump into what would be regarded as his most commercially and critically successful project from that year, which would be Poltergeist, directed by Toby Hooper and written and produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, We'll listen here to a bit of the main theme, uh, which is Carol Ann's theme, uh, musically representing the the character of Carol Ann, the youngest daughter in the Freeling family in the story. And she is a little girl lost in the supernatural realm. Um, So this theme represents her character, and even when she's off screen and you maybe only hear her voice, um, it serves to continue uh, her presence in the movie, and it it definitely is sort of a beacon of light in a score that has a lot of uh, darker tones and textures. So as you could hear there, the, the character of that theme is very much like a, a lullaby. Um, and in fact, for the performance in the end credits, uh, the melody is actually uh, expressed uh, through a, a children's choir. Uh, so it seemed very apt there. 
but next, I wanted to um, discuss uh, what I mentioned earlier about the influence of, of Debussy's music um, on the score. Uh, so it's what I think is is really great is that uh, that Goldsmith took you know these textures that uh, this harmonic language that Debussy is known for these flowing textures these passages that kind of dovetail into one another and there almost seems to be no specific you know rhythmic quality that it's following um, and there's some shades of dissonance but otherwise there are these, these very um, sort of beautiful um, sort of glowing uh, harmonic uh, textures. And so there's nothing that he's taking, you know, melodically. There's nothing that is barring. It's just more like the language of, of Debussy. And you can hear in the string textures especially. Um, so I wanted to play a little bit of Debussy's La Mer. Just so you can get an idea of, you know, the, what I'm talking about when I, when I mentioned that, that harmonic language uh, of his works. Now let's listen to a portion of a cue called Night Visitor from Poltergeist. Uh, this accompanies a sequence of a ghost, a sort of a specter that's floating down the uh, staircase in the Freeland house. Another component of the score, uh, along with Carol Ann's theme and those uh, Debussy 
influenced passages um, is uh, there is the evil presence in the movie that he needs to characterize musically. Um, in the movie, this is uh, referred to as the Beast. Uh, but there are some fantastic uh, dark uh, passages in the score uh, with a lot of low woodwinds, um, uh, alto flutes, and, and, and uh, low strings uh, to characterize it. But there's also some aggressive material, um, which pulls on uh, influences from Igor Stravinsky, um, who has long been an influence on Jerry Goldsmith's music. Uh, he is a self-professed fan of, of Stravinsky and Bella Bartok. And those, the influences of those two composers have been, uh, were prevalent throughout his career, um, right from the get-go. Uh, but he's always been able to, you know, mold it and shape it uh, to kind of still fit his own personality, his own personal style. Uh, but with uh, Stravinsky, you have these aggressive textures, um, a lot of times these repeated motifs um, and uh, odd meter rhythms um, and uh, jagged uh, brass. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear that, especially in Stravinsky's work for uh, The Rite of Spring. Um, and those were ones that, uh, th- those were works I think that Jerry Goldsmith kind of internalized and and then uh, worked back into his own uh, film scores. So here's a little bit of that uh, in a cue called Escape from Suburbia, basically at, towards the end of the film. Um, when the beast uh, basically is taken over the Freeling house, uh, so the family has to uh, escape with all due haste. I really love the brass in that cue, especially those low trombones uh, with that uh, repeating ostinato that they keep hammering through. Uh, it's, it's such it, it gives that uh, cue such a, a great propulsive drive. Um, and it's just like all you can feel is the panic of the family as they're trying to get out of the house uh, with their lives. So you know, all of those elements coalesce um, into to making Poltergeist uh, more of a symphonic uh, tone poem. Um, you know, the, the entire 60 minutes of music, and there's only 60 minutes of music, about, I guess a little over 60 minutes of music written for the film, uh, but it flows just effortlessly together. I mean, it, even, you know, working in his, you know, Goldsmith style, you know, the influences of, De- of Debussy, the influences of Stravinsky, and um, it all coalesces together really beautifully. And, you know, you can basically listen to that whole 
60 minute score and it just plays like a grand symphony uh, bookended again by Carol Ann's theme that lullaby theme so um, it kind of this these in a, this innocent theme that pulls you in and then at least kind of takes you back out of it now one interesting fact that I learned recently at a panel discussion with Bruce Botnick who was uh, Jerry Goldsmith's recording engineer for years, starting back in 1979, uh, was some background on uh, Goldsmith's process on Poltergeist. He, uh, he talked about how the only person that, uh, that Jerry Goldsmith you know, worked with on the film directly w- uh, was not the director, uh, Toby Hooper, but was instead writer-producer Steven Spielberg himself. So it's unusual, since normally the collaboration is between a director and his composer, but Spielberg was uh, very personally involved in this project, more so than most producers would be. And Jerry Goldsmith was uh, sought out by Spielberg months before uh, shooting was completed. Um, and he uh, saw a rough cut of the film in uh, in November of 1981. Um, and then after seeing that rough cut, he was allowed uh, around 15 weeks to compose the music. Uh, the music was then recorded uh, in late January, early February of 1982, uh, Spielberg you know, has, has talked about many times. If you ever read his liner notes on um, the John Williams albums, he talks about um, what a big time fan of movie music he has been his whole life. And um, in the notes for Poltergeist, uh, he talks about that he was all, a longtime admirer of Jerry Goldsmith as well. Um, and that he had, at one point, I guess he had considered hiring him for the Sugarland Express back in 1973, uh, before he wound up uh, hiring John Williams for that. Uh, but working together on Poltergeist was a great experience for uh, for both Goldsmith and Spielberg. Uh, they wound up collaborating again the following year on Twilight Zone, the movie, um, where there were four segments by four different directors, uh, and uh, Goldsmith worked with all four of them. And then afterwards, uh, Goldsmith scored uh, both film and TV projects produced by Spielberg, um, such as Gremlins and Interspace, um, the Amazing Stories uh, TV series. Uh, he did an episode of that. But uh, what resulted from their collaboration on Poltergeist is certainly to be valued, uh, and it can easily be considered one of uh, Goldsmith's top 10 scores. And that brings me to the next movie from 1982 that I wanted to discuss. And that is The Challenge, uh, directed by John Frankenheimer and starring Scott Glenn. It's not uh, as well known as Poltergeist, uh, but it's a pretty neat action movie. Uh, it takes place in Japan and uh, revolves around a feud uh, between uh, these two brothers. And there's also these two samurai swords uh, called the Equals that play a part. Scott Glenn gets uh, kind of pulled into things. Um, in the movie as he's hired to bring to smuggle one of the swords into Japan. So it was a movie released in summer of 82. Um, however, I found out that Goldsmith had actually recorded the score back in November of 81. So most likely it was composed during the weeks prior. So I guess the movie just sat on the shelf, you know, after it was finished post-production for a bit longer. But what makes this interesting to me is the crossover time it has with Poltergeist. Um, because some of those Debussy influences that you heard in Poltergeist can also be heard in the challenge as well. Um, there are, of course, Japanese instrumentation uh, such as Koto and Shako Hachai, um, you know, which are, you know, very fitting for the movie. Um, but there are other elements. I, I had always kind of equated it as being sort of an Asian-influenced companion piece to Poltergeist. Um, and I had assumed, you know, that uh, 
that Poltergeist was composed first, but it's interesting that the challenge seems to have been um, composed first. But I know that he had seen a rough cut of Poltergeist the same month he recorded the challenge. And, you know, maybe, you know, after conversations with, you know, between himself and Spielberg, that he already had these ideas percolating in his brain about, you know, that musical language, that that those sounds he wanted for Poltergeist. And maybe by extension, that he wound up incorporating them into the challenge as well. So you'll hear this here um, in the uh, playing a bit of the main title for the challenge. And hopefully you can kind of pick up on those string textures that are reminiscent of Poltergeist. So I think it's those swelling strings there at the end that make me uh, think of Poltergeist the most, that remind me of Poltergeist there. Uh, otherwise, the strings are very meditative. Uh, they have a very meditative quality there, almost like a the musical equivalent of a Zen koan. <laughs> um, but the, the challenge also shares another uh, feature with Poltergeist, and that is some aggressive action passages in the Stravinsky mold. Uh, and it's some of the, the most aggressive of Goldsmith's uh, 1980s output. Um, he had a real talent for scoring action sequences, and uh, I, I've always found that, um, you know, with those cues, you know, there's such a sense of uh, musicality to them. They feel like a complete piece of music that uh, it's, it's almost balletic uh, that the, the music could accompany uh, a real uh, furious uh, ballet dance troupe if it uh, if someone wanted to to go that route. Um, so I'll play that here um, in a moment. Uh, but I also wanted to point out that the challenge is a great example of Goldsmith's approach to many of his projects, uh, and that is to write a main theme that's very malleable, very flexible, uh, one that he can deconstruct and pass it around to different sections of the orchestra, whether it's the whole theme or just a portion of it, and get as much mileage from it thematically through those variations. Um, the, the same theme could be a hero theme and it could also be the love theme depending on how it's played and who's playing it. Um, so that theme you just heard from the main title, um, gets expressed in the action music as well. Um, so it makes everything 
organically linked within the score. Um, every cue is linked to the next by this thematic through line, uh, but it never feels repetitive. It doesn't feel like he's just simply repeating it from cue to cue. It's it's just those endlessly inventive variations and ways of uh, of like I said, deconstructing it and passing it around to different sections, and um, it's just very flexible and it. it it makes the score so intrinsically connected to its, you know, respective movie that you can't place that music in another context. You can't drag and drop a cue from this into another movie um, because it's so linked to that that movie so organically. Uh, so here's a bit of the action material uh, from a cue called "Over the Top." So this brings me to the next movie to dive into um, on this episode, and that would be Night Crossing. Um, this was released in February of 82. Uh, it's directed by Delbert Mann and stars John Hurt and Bo Bridges. Um, the plot of the movie um, basically concerns these. Uh, it takes place during uh, Cold War era. Uh, there's East and West Germany, and there's these two families that are trying to escape from East Germany to West Germany. And uh, the plan is to do it uh, by hot air balloon. Um, so it's kind of a family adventure movie. Um, and uh, so so this was released, you know, like I said, in early 82. So um, Goldsmith probably worked on it uh, at least late 81 and, and maybe, you know, even uh, into early 82 before it was recorded. But I couldn't actually get exact recording dates on that. Uh, but it's a score uh, that still fits right alongside the others uh, from 82 as far as, again, very uh, a very lush, uh, larger orchestral sound. This one's more multi-thematic um, in that it has uh, several distinct themes. Uh, it has an, an opening uh, militaristic oppressive theme uh, for the East German military. Uh, it has a soaring triumphant theme. A uh, very broad major key uh, theme for the the family's uh, escape, and it also has sort of a secondary theme, which is sort of like this light Viennese waltz tune, um, which is heard on accordion. Um, and it's for 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 Goldsmith fans who who know their stuff. It's it's kind of the lighter side, the sunnier side of his waltz from the Boys from Brazil in 1978. So it's still kind of a Straussian sort of waltz. And then there's other um, smaller motifs, uh, rhythmic motifs, and, and sort of uh, suspense material. So it's, it's again, a rich, um, you know, fully orchestral score. 
and uh, it has some of these flowing uh, passages uh, that you would also have uh, heard uh, around you know that same time as that we heard in Poltergeist and will hear eventually in Secret of Nim later in the same year. So I wanted to play a little bit of the uh, the main title, which is where you can hear a little bit of that uh, militaristic uh, theme that I mentioned for uh, for the East German military. So that odd meter rhythm that you heard there in that cue um, gets uh, picked up a lot in the score. It's, it's used to kind of uh, propel, you know, the um, you know the, the families and, and sort of like add that extra sense of, of tension and panic um, as they you know, they try to to escape. Um, and uh, it's it's a pretty cool uh, element of the score, which I really uh, really like a lot. And it's kind of a cousin to. Some of the material that he wrote for Capricorn One back in in uh, 1977. Um, so then the the other theme that I mentioned, um, there was two other themes kind of for the families. There's this uh, more soaring theme, and there's sort of this secondary waltz tune, which is heard a couple times. I want to play you a little bit of that waltz uh, material, uh, so you'll hear it here in a cue called the picnic, um, and it's performed on accordion. So that waltz tune sort of represents uh, happier times for the the two families um, before they you know try to escape. Um, so you know as far as the uh, other major theme uh, that's in the movie, uh, like I said, there is um, this uh, theme that's uh, more soaring. It kind of reminds me a little bit of his main theme for the Blue Max, um, which was another movie that concerned itself with flight, uh, but that one was World War One airplanes, but. In this situation, it's it's again sort of a, a, a soaring major key theme 
um, and it's in, used a lot in two uh, big sequences where they uh, try to get the the hot air balloon um, over the uh, over into West Germany. And uh, I wanted to play a bit of that here in a queue called First Flight. Um, so they've gone through their successful test with the balloon, and then they, you know, they it uh, takes off, and then this eventually, you know, kind of leads to trouble. But um, I really like the uh, the way that the the string line um, just rises and soars, and it's just really exuberant, um, and it's it's uh, it really have, has that uh, effervescent quality to it. It just um, it's really beautiful, um, and it has a really and like I said, it leads to this really great. Uh, the, the other major theme for the movie. Uh, so you'll hear that here uh, as part of the cue First Flight. That theme really uh, presents such a feeling of, of triumph, of success, uh, especially with that huge cymbal crash that just opens it, and it just, you know, absolutely, um, it, you know, it just really takes flight, uh, and uh, it, it's it's really chill-inducing, <laughs> um, in a good way, not in a horror movie way. It uh, just gives you goosebumps. So uh, it's interesting that, that Night Crossing is more of a multi-thematic work than something like The Challenge. Um, and, and maybe it's again just something that the, the director had asked for from Goldsmith. Um, or maybe it was just how he felt about the movie. I mean, uh, there are more characters or the two families, and then you know having the the oppressive East German you know sort of side to to, to paint thematically. It's just interesting in the challenge, in in that it's so monothematic in a way, um, and yet. If it had been scored, you know, at a different time, it may have, you know, maybe would have resulted in different themes for the two brothers that are feuding and maybe a different theme for the swords or something. But instead, you know, he he applies and varies the the same main theme 
for everybody, maybe because they're just kind of, in, you know, intrinsically linked to the swords, and that's the theme for the swords. But in Night Crossing, um, you know, he's got more, it's more varied thematically, um, which is uh, makes it pretty interesting and uh, a real treat to listen to. Um, you can, again, hear some of the, the lush flowing passages. It's, it's not as overt in terms of the, um, the, the, the bit of Debussy shadings that you were getting in Poltergeist, but it still has that, you know, that larger orchestral presence, that rich, uh, orchestral presence that he had, like I said, he had moved into by the late seventies and early eighties. And so this kind of leads us into the secret of Nim. Um, I had, uh, secret of Nim was one of the early purchases I'd made of, of Goldsmith. Um, and, uh, so I didn't discover night crossing until years later. And it's interesting in listening to some of that flight music, and it's the same year and realizing, wow, it's a little, it's kind of a close cousin in a couple ways to Secret of Nim. And it's interesting because Secret of Nim was the next movie that he scored. Um, so that was recorded around um, May of 82. So um, he, you know, went into composing that uh, score, you know, not too long after, uh, after this one. Um, now, what's interesting about Secret of Nim is I find there's more of an influence from Ravel, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, and specifically Ravel's Daphne and Chloe, um, which uh, had been recommended to me when I was in high school. Um, it's sort of like, oh, you like movie music or you like classical music, and have you ever heard this from Ravel? And I hadn't, and uh, it's great. It's, it's this really sumptuous orchestral choir um, sort of fantasia, uh, and it's... Um, it's really beautiful, and it, it, it's, uh, I can absolutely, you know, once I heard it, I was like, oh, I, abs- I can see how, you know, there are elements. Again, there's nothing borrowed. It's just the language. It's just a little bit of the tone. So I wanted to play a little bit of Ravel's Daphne and Chloe here, and then follow that with the main title from Secret of Nim, and see if you can kind of hear how that might have influenced, uh, how, how Ravel might have influenced uh, Secret of Nim a little bit. So here's some of the opening from, uh, from Daphne and Chloe by Maurice Ravel. So uh, keep those textures in mind with the uh, orchestra and choir and um, listen here to uh, the main title from a uh, part of the main title from Secret of Nim.
So just for a little of uh, context with Seeker of Nim, um, it's uh, an animated movie, uh, again from 82, of course, directed by Don Bluth and based on a book, um, I think it's Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, it's is it basically uh, you know an early Don Bluth sort of had had you know um, migrated over from Disney and started his own um, animation company. Eventually went on to also do an American Tale and Land Before Time. Um, but uh, this was kind of I think you know his first one out of the gate um, and had uh, the vocal talents of uh, Dom DeLuise and Derek Jacobi and Elizabeth Hartman and um, and then of course Jerry Goldsmith doing the music. He also had a song uh, written uh, the, with the lyrics by Paul Williams uh, called Flying Dreams, and it's also sung in the movie uh, by the, the main character, who was renamed Mrs. Brisby as opposed to Frisbee. Uh, but it was the first animated project that Goldsmith did, um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, he had talked about the challenge of sort of working from, you know, getting the animation as it was finished, which is, it's in really short sequences. Um, but he had talked about how he scored the movie as if it was live action. He didn't, you know, it, it, at that point, animation was kind of in a more of a fallow period. It wasn't, it hadn't hit the heights that it did after Little Mermaid and all this kind of stuff when it had a grand return. And this is 2D animation, not 3D animation. Um, but Goldsmith talked about how he didn't want to sort of quote-unquote Mickey Mouse it and, um, you know, track every action, you know, with a xylophone hit or a cymbal crash. He scored it as if it was just a drama and, you know, it just happened to have mice and rats and crows. <laughs> um, but it's a wonderful score. It's, it's uh, again, thematically varied. Um, you know, there there's several themes in there. The Flying Dreams theme from that, from that song I mentioned is kind of the main theme and it's a great soaring theme. But there's wonderful um, instrumental colors from uh, from the choir and from low brass and low woodwinds, um, sketching out the the characters musically. Um, and I, you know, it's it's again an early purchase of mine from Jerry Goldsmith, and always a favorite of mine. It's just it's such a rich score. Um, but I wanted to play a little bit of material that features the main theme, the Flying Dreams theme. So this is a cue called No Thanks. Um, and uh, it starts quietly, but it does sort of, sort of um, lead up into a, a really wonderful presentation of that main theme. So in terms of other thematic material from the score, 
there's sort of a Prokofiev-inspired uh, woodwind theme for uh, for the crow uh, for Jeremy, who is voiced by uh, Dom DeLuise. As you know, he helps uh, Mrs. Brisby. It's often heard in bass clarinet, but then other woodwinds, flutes that sort of join in. Um, so it's to me, it's got kind of a little bit of a Peter and the Wolf character to it. Uh, there's also some great choral moments, um, some some wonderful magical moments with the orchestra and choir. Um, there's a, a really tense um, but you know fascinating action cue that's uh, at near the end of the movie with pizzicato strings and low end piano and um, these churning basses, uh, which uh, kind of you know kept me hypnotized when I watched the movie as a kid. Then there's also a uh, a humble little march theme, uh, which is associated with the with the rats of Nim as they help out Mrs. Brisby, and it's only heard a couple times in the movie, but uh, it's it's given a nice presentation in the end credits. Um, so I'll uh, play a little bit of that here as it leads into the march, and then also uh, as sort of a, a part of the flying dreams theme, but more of a uh, really expressive part of the bridge of that theme. So now we've reached the point where we're closing out uh, Jerry Goldsmith's 1982 uh, with the last movie that he scored that year that was released in that year, uh, that being First Blood, uh, which was released in October of 82, uh, directed by Ted Kochev and starring Sylvester Stallone, of course, Brian Dennehy and Richard Crenna. So this is the film that kicked off the Rambo series. Uh, the next two installments, uh, also uh, with music by Goldsmith, uh, that in 85 and 88, uh, First Blood Part Two and Rambo Three, And then, of course, um, years later in 2008, there was uh, another film in the series just called Rambo that had music by Brian Tyler. Uh, but this first entry uh, basically tells the story of uh, the Vietnam vet John Rambo. He's still struggling for to find a life for himself after the war and um, instead, he just finds major trouble with local law enforcement. Um, so it's interesting. It was so it was released in October of '82, like I said. Um, and in some ways, it's the real outlier of the bunch uh, from the scores that uh, from Goldsmith that uh, were released that year. Um, it's the only score that really features electronics in any way, and it's not overt. Um, but you know, Poltergeist Challenge 
uh, Night Crossing, Secret of Nim don't really have any uh, uh, any sort of use of electronics as much. Um, they're all pretty much all acoustic. Um, and uh, First Blood has a bit more. And what I find interesting is that it was it kind of led the way for the remaining part of, of uh, Goldsmith's career. Because pretty much from 1983 on, um, it became more common than not that every film he scored, you know, he basically would include some electronic, some synthesizer elements with the orchestra. Um, and previous to that, those were, you know, oftentimes, it, you know, it was more of the orchestral sound more than the electronic sound. Um, but I think as the technology got better and increased and as, as there were more things he could do with synthesizers and samplers, um, I think he just became fascinated with it. He was always a composer, as I mentioned at the, the top of the episode, that was interested in unexpected sounds and unusual sounds. And in the early part of his career, he had to figure out how to make these sounds acoustically. But once electronics came around, he could figure out, oh, I have this strange sound in my head. Can I make this through an electronic uh, element uh, or synthesizer element? Um, and, you know, there's debate among, you know, his his uh, ardent fans about, you know, whether that, you know, hindered his, his scores or whether just, I think it just added another color. Um, I mean, it's really hard to imagine uh, the music he wrote for Gremlins without those, those weird electronic sounds that uh, kind of mimic... Uh, uh, cat meows and other sort of weird things. Um, and, you know, his his electronic sounds were never meant to replace a part of the orchestra. It really was just augmenting it with something, a sound that you couldn't make acoustically. But in First Blood, it's still primarily, you know, an orchestral score, but he has uh, some uh, rhythmic elements with this uh, sort of uh, keyboard, this low-end uh, keyboard motif, and then some other sort of strange electronic effects uh, for a sequence when um, Rambo's getting kind of tortured and he's having these flashbacks to Vietnam. But in terms of overall uh, architecture of the score, it uh, falls in line with the approach that Goldsmith favored and that he uh, had talked about in, uh, in past interviews where he liked to provide the movie um, a main theme and then a short motif, basically some sort of, you know, flexible, short, you know, five, six notes, something that he could kind of play around with and vary and, and, uh, and, and use as, um, you know, like I said, a rhythmic device or something. Um, whereas the main theme could function, uh, you know, in multiple guises throughout the movie. Um, and so, it, you know, it, uh, it falls in line a little bit with the challenge, although the challenge is, is really kind of all based around one particular main theme. There's really not even a, a sub motif so much. Um, and, uh, Secret of Nim was multi-thematic, and Night Crossing was was a little more multi-thematic. And Poltergeist is just sort of it has Carol Ann's theme, and then some material for uh, the Beast, and a lot of um, variety in orchestral color. But it's more flowing and and, and varied, like a like a, like I said earlier, like a symphonic sort of tone poem. So First Blood sort of is more of the standard model of the Goldsmith approach to to scoring a, a picture, and the main theme. Um, I think kind of falls in line a little bit more with his Western, something like Lonely Are the Brave or um, uh, Wild Horses, in that it starts with just an acoustic guitar, and then it develops through, and then the, the main melodic line uh, is heard on trumpet, you know, so it can also, you know, have that um, military type of uh, um, association, uh, but it could also have the association of, you know, a lone cowboy. 
and uh, the the opening uh, images, you know, of Rambo kind of walking down this this long uh, road, and the the title of the of the theme is "It's a Long Road." It also had lyrics uh, and a, a song version that was prepared for the end credits. But we'll hear a little bit of that here. Um, this is uh, Homecoming from First Blood. like how the acoustic guitar there never really stops moving. It has this restless quality um, underneath the whole tune, uh, kind of speaking to this restless quality of John Rambo's life uh, after the war, I think, and constantly moving and never able to keep a job. And then that solo trumpet has a melancholy air to it, but it also is still proud. It still has some sort of, you know, um, uh, nobility to it, but it, it's it's melancholy and completely, you know, uh, isolated. Uh, and the strings come in to provide, I think, a bit of empathy. Um, I think the strings come in to warm it up a little bit as well. But they 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 provide a real empathetic quality, I think, to that theme. And it really, I think, that's with those three elements, I think it sketches out Rambo's character really well. So the other element that I mentioned, um, as far as um, what Goldsmith liked to do, is so he has a small. Uh, motif. It's like a five-note uh, motif that you'll hear in um, usually on a low-end piano or uh, or a keyboard, you know, electronic keyboard. Um, but it also gets moved for the orchestra all over the place. You'll hear it rapidly in the strings. You'll hear it, in, you know, in rhythm sections. Um, and it's it's a really amazing propulsive device that gets used throughout the whole score. Uh, so I wanted to play a little bit of that here uh, in a cue called Escape Route, and you'll hear it right at the beginning uh, of that cue.
So I think that that uh, five note motif, uh, I think it represents basically Rambo as a machine. Um, you know, Richard Crenna's character uh, talks about how he later in the movie created and trained Rambo and he's this, you know, he was trained to kill, period. Uh, you know, without sort of question, he's this efficient soldier. Um, but I, it's, uh, and I, I hesitate to say killing machine because in First Blood, it's interesting, there's really only one person that uh, that dies in the movie and it's really just because he falls out of a helicopter. Um, and, uh, but anyway, but I think that that motif, um, I think it represents that part of Rambo that's, um, it's been trained. I think then it just simply turns on. It's just basically like a, a switch has been flipped. Um, and now he's just simply uh, completely acting based on training without sort of any um, conscious thought, I guess, as much as like um, he, he's not able to turn it off. So it's just this, you know, rhythmic, you know, propulsive uh, motif that kind of runs through a lot of these, uh, the action cues in the movie. I think that provides that other insight into Rambo's character as far as what drives him um, once he's turned, you know, once he has that switch has been flipped. Uh, so you'll hear it here um, in another action cue um, as it develops, as the strings pick it up, um, you'll, you know, you know, it, it gets it moved around the orchestra a lot, but um, there, there's a real agility in the orchestra here. I love that um, they almost like Rambo, they could turn on a dime. Uh, it's almost like imagine, imagining a dancer doing a pirouette, but the whole orchestra is so, um, you know, there, there's an, uh, like an acrobatic nature to how the orchestra Goldsmith has written for it. And then it doesn't sound, um, random. It doesn't, you know, it's basically, it's still musical, but that they can, you know, turn on a dime, uh, and just kind of, uh, react, um, aggressively if they need to, or, um, you know, heroically if they need to, and uh, it's it's really wonderful stuff. Um, so it's a, some there's bits of it that sometimes remind me of Stravinsky's uh, uh, work for the Petrushka, um, the the ballet work Petrushka. And so there's there's bits with the piccolo and the xylophone, things like that that kind of remind me of Stravinsky. But uh, you'll hear a little bit of that here. That was a cue called "Hanging On," uh, where you also, in addition to that uh, that short motif, you hear the homecoming theme, the the main theme, actually played more in an action variant. Um, it's just like the first few notes of it. Uh, it's not the whole theme, but you'll hear. You know, it's it's a good example of Goldsmith kind of making use of that theme, but in different guises, um, and it, it works well as an action theme here as well. But one other thematic element that I almost forgot to mention is right at the end of the movie, when things are sort of wrapping up. There's a, a new thematic idea introduced, and it's actually uh, with two trumpets um, harmonized, and it's it's kind of it sounds more like it would be an elegy uh, for uh, honoring fallen soldiers, 
Um, and I, I think the, uh, uh, the, the two trumpets work well together, contrasting with the solo trumpet that starts the movie. Um, and, and that, uh, that, that Rambo is still, uh, that his, that Colonel Troutman basically comes to get him. So he has like one friend, you know, that he can rely on. Um, but you'll hear that here as it kind of, it's going to lead into the end credits, but I wanted to play a little bit of that new thematic idea here. Even though that was the last project of Goldsmith's release that year, uh, as per his typically booked schedule, he was on to his next movie. Uh, in this case, it was Psycho 2, uh, which he recorded in December of 1982, uh, while the film itself was out in theaters in June of 83. But my hope would be on another episode that I could uh, dive into uh, one of the other uh, years following this so that you can kind of uh, compare and contrast, you know, what Goldsmith in 84 was like or 86 or, or you know, in, in, into more of his period of the electronic orchestral combo. Uh, so there's lots more really great stuff that we can dive into. I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was uh, as fun for you as it was for me to turn the focus on to Jerry Goldsmith's music in 1982. Uh, you know, this reminded me when I was actually kind of starting out on the developing this podcast, one of my initial ideas was basically one episode per year of Goldsmith's career, because I figured that would there's such a, a wealth of music every year that he uh, wrote for film and television that you, know, you could easily spend uh, 45 minutes to an hour talking about you know, every project that he did each year. Um, but it seemed like I wanted a broader focus, but it's still really fun. I hope to be able to do a few more of these on um, some real highlight years uh, from his career. I wanted to point out a mistake I made earlier when I'm talking about the uh, main theme in First Blood and comparing it to some of his Western genre themes. I had said Wild Horses when I meant Wild Rovers. Wild Rovers is actually the name of a Western he scored in 1971. If you're interested in learning more, uh, check out jerrygoldsmithonline.com as it has a listing of all of his projects and a biography and more. Uh, music in this episode was from the following films, Poltergeist, The Challenge, Night Crossing, The Secret of Nim, and First Blood. If you'd like to find these scores on album, they're available from various record labels uh, such as Filmscore Monthly and Trotter Records and La La Land Records. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, uh, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com, find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle. If you subscribe via iTunes, take a moment to rate the podcast. It'll help bring me uh, notice on uh, these episodes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>